HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and today is Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Heritage Radio Network. And I'd like to introduce our guest. We'll be talking about uh, a, a, a new beverage product that's an old product. Um, let's start with Carol. Hey, guys. I'm Carol Pack. I'm the founder of Maku, a new kind of Korean rice beer. Great. Blake? Hey, everybody. My name is Blake Crawford. I'm one of the owners and the head of operations at the Elementary Brewing Company in Hackensack, New Jersey. And Martin? Hi, I'm Martin Johnson. I am the craft beer buyer for Westside Market's East Village location. We are proud to run one of the most extensive craft beer programs of any uh, supermarket in New York City. And we've been carrying Maku for over a year now. Wow. So that's a great introduction. So, Carol, um, your team reached out to us a little while ago, and I, and I wasn't quite sure what Makali was as, as a product, but I know that it's a traditional product. So give us a little backstory on, on this rice beer and how you first uh, got inspired to, to launch a product. So it's not a surprise that you don't know what it is. Um, I'd say 99.9% of people that are not Korean, um, have never heard of it before, have never seen it. Um, so Makgeolli is Korea's oldest alcoholic beverage. It's dated back to 
Um, they say the founding of Korea and for as long as there's been any kind of documentation on like whether it be illustrations or writings about like the kings and um, just like stories from the past, there is a mention of this alcohol that is makgeolli. And what it basically is, is um, a fermented rice alcohol brewed from rice and um, it has a unique fermentation starter called nuruk, which is native to Korea and is only made to make Korean alcohol, including soju. Um, and the uh, kind of like the function of makgeolli is very similar to the history of like beer and cider and its progression and its place in society, which was, it was a um, kind of created naturally uh, as a byproduct of like um, whatever grains was uh, in society and kind of made, you know, by accident and um, was a drink of the people and had very various functions from like, um, nutrition to social, um, bringing people together to like helping the farmers out, um, like in the sun, either like quench their thirst or kind of like take up a, a breather from work. And um, yeah, it's uh, been uh, an important part of Korean culture and society till this day. If you watch any Korean drama um, or movie, it will have makgeolli in it somewhere. And for some reason, it hasn't really. Um, become reputable or there's not much knowledge or innovation on it like the way um, there's been a lot of noise around soju and um, yeah I'm here to change that because I think that the drink is so interesting and so delicious and there's a lot of complexity and nuance around it and um, it's a lot more delicate and sessionable and refreshing um, compared to soju um, and actually, fun fact, if you distill makgeolli, it is soju. Oh, that's great. So let's, 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 let's go to Martin. So, so Martin, um, when I, I saw last week that at Westside Market, you makku. carry the maku. And um, it's your first time tasting it. So first tell us, you know, why you guys carry it, how it does. But primarily, what's, what's the taste and flavor profile, just to bring us into it? Well, I mean... Um I share the purchasing duties with um, my boss at the store. It's kind of an interesting org chart, given that he's my boss overall, and he's my assistant on the beer aisle. But we have uh, typically we have set roles. He's the one who negotiates quantity discounts. I'm the one that brings in new product. He brought this in. So my first reaction was, huh, that's not right. You want me to go out and negotiate some quantity discounts then? Um, but in fact... I was kind of intrigued because we have a strong um, Asian clientele, and I thought, well, this might work. And indeed, that's uh, that's who's buying the beer. Trying it now, I mean, when I first poured it into my glass, the first thing I thought was, wow, this is the haziest IPA I've ever seen. And, um, we, you know, in fact, it, it really does look like a milkshake New England IPA in the glass. And if I'm pouring drinking the mango one so of course the flavor leads along those lines too it's like hmm so this is this is what finback is trying to do right and and how how is it refreshing what what's the general you know mouthfeel well, and everything it's, it's definitely it's the mouthfeel is it's very light like you would expect from a rice a rice based um 
beer, and it's very, um, very mango-y and very fruit-forward. Um, yeah, I mean, I could, I could readily see it accompanying somewhat uh, fairly spicy foods or something. Uh, I'm, I'm having it with popcorn, and it's working just fine. Well, thank you, Martin. And Blake, um, one reason you're on the show is I know that you've been making a number of, at, at Elementary in Hackensack, New Jersey, some barbecue chef collaborations. Uh, last year you made a collaboration with Rob Cho of Kimchi Smoke um, that had a, a Korean inspiration to it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was um, a, a fantastic project that we did with Rob and you know, he and I were hanging out one night drinking beers and, and he said, you know, he, he brings Korean flavor to Texas barbecue. That's sort of his game. Right. Um, and he looked at me and he was like, you need to figure out how to bring Korean flavors to American craft beer. Um, and that started down this project. And, and of course, being like, you know, a white dude from Arkansas, I don't know a whole lot about the world of, of Korean flavor and, and, uh, um, and there were no commercial Makgeolli products that we could actually find. So, um, you know, I was able to, to find some kind of homebrew examples from our local community, our local uh, Korean community to inform that collaboration. But, um, you know, I, I personally am a huge fan of these kind of lighter bodied, you know, high rice beers. I think they have, a, you know, they have a very specific place, uh, specifically in the American craft beer world. That's great. So, Carol, um, you know, so you grew up in America, and when did you discover Macaulay, and why did you think that this would be a good uh, product for you to get behind? Um, I can't remember when I discovered Macaulay, but most Korean Americans, it'll be at a very young age, um, like under 10 where it's just like part of the dinner table or if you go to a Korean restaurant, it's just kind of scattered along some of the other tables that you're seeing. Um, and they come in a very unique bottle. It's a 750 milliliter plastic like PET bottle with like Korean text on it. Uh, it's not very pretty at all. So it's a very distinct um, bottle and the, the practice of drinking it there's a specific like um, cup and uh, so they pour the bottle into um, like kettles, like copper tin bronze looking kettles. And then they'll pour uh, out of the kettle into bowls. So like matching copper bowls. And so like everyone is drinking this white liquid out of this like gold bowl. And so like it's, you really can't miss it. And, you know, that visual has always been with me. And when I was older, I tried the drink and it, it's, I'm, I'm not sure about like non-Asians, but for me, like the rice is uh, a basic of our like cuisine. And so like that um, flavor is like very palatable for me and very uh, easy for me to, to have. Um, so it was just, it was delicious. It was like slightly sweet. It was just a little bit tart. Um, so it's a very easy drink compared to something like a wine that's higher ABV or beer that's, you know, doesn't necessarily taste good the first time around for like a young drinker and especially a female. Like, I think my first drink was probably like a Natty Light or a Bud Light and it just didn't taste good to me. Whereas for Makali, the very first sip is 
very easy to drink and very sweet and very delicious. And um, there's also like all of these other flavors like peach and banana. Um, and in Asia, they typically drink sweeter. So that was my first experience. And while it tasted really good, um, I guess in social occasions, like, you know, it, it just never was an option. Like I, we were either drinking, you know, vodka or um, beer or wine and um, like wine, wine coolers actually. So I think growing up, I, you know, drank a lot of like spiked, like a Smirnoff ice and Mike's hard lemonade. Um, so I totally forgot about makgeolli, especially because the only time I had it was really with like uh, family members, like the older ones. Um, and there, there was always that stigma associated with makgeolli. So a lot of it was like the branding, the, posi the positioning, the lack of availability. Um, but it was something that was, you know, it was just there. Yeah. And so you, you've but you got inspired, um, you know, why this drink now? You know, and, and what have you had to do to, to launch this as a brand in the States? Because I noticed that you, you seem like I've seen images of the product in Seattle. You're here in New York, in New York. Mm -hmm. um, so g give us your little kind of brand vision and everything. Yeah. Um, so growing up, my parents were both entrepreneurs and I knew I always wanted to start something, um, a business. And I felt like, oh, what? What advantage do I have that others don't? Um, so I was always thinking of like a Korean American product, like a, a Korean product that I could either bring to America or an American product that I could bring to Korea um, because I travel between the two countries pretty frequently and I, I could speak the language fluently and I have friends and family over there. So that was something that I was always like had my eyes open um, for and then with the rise of like Korean culture for the past, you know, five, 10 years, I thought like, oh, this is like a very interesting time. And while um, that was going on, I also was working in the beer industry, um, working on like launching new products at like a larger beer company. And so when I took a business trip to Korea and um, everyone was kind of looking for the next beverage trend in uh, America after like the IPAs and this was like pre-hard seltzer I was looking at various options and when I was in Korea I was like oh like there's a renaissance happening with makgeolli in Korea could it ever go to the U.S. and then it started leading into more questions of like what's the current market now who drinks it now why doesn't anyone drink it if it tastes so good um do I have a clear advantage, you know, being Korean American and also working in the beer industry? Um, and then like on the other end, it was like, oh, if I have a product, would I be able to sell it to the first few restaurants? And I growing up and like being born and raised in Flushing and like going to school in Manhattan, I felt like I knew enough like restaurant owners to like at least test the concepts with. So it was more of a little project for me at the beginning. Um, but restaurants were saying that, like, oh, yeah, if you came up with, like, a better branded, clean label makgeolli, I think that there would be a market for it, both from the restaurants and for, for the consumers. Um, and coupled with the fact that there was, like, more interest in Korean culture and Korean products and, like, the job that Korea did with, like, branding itself as a very, like, premium 
country in terms of like the, the products that it turns out, um, I felt like it was a pretty good time to launch a Korean beverage. That's great. So let's talk about making the product. So is it, and Blake might want to weigh in too, is this, is this similar to brewing beer? Is it similar to making sake? What is the making of Makali like? Um, I would, yeah, I would say it's closest to uh, making like a nigori sake, but then the way we do it, where we pasteurize it, we can it, um, and we carbonate it, it also involves like the process of beer. Um, but it is also, you know, like if you know the process of brewing, it's actually more similar to a beer than anything else. And actually sake is categorized kind of like in as a beer um, in, by the TTB. So in the beginning, I visited both beer breweries and sake breweries in the U.S. to try to help me like um, brew this product. But then the equipment, like you need both of them, like because um, beer breweries can't handle the amounts of rice because you're brewing with the whole grain in the vessel the entire time. And so like washing the rice and um, filtering, filtering the rice out and just handling such like it was like tons of rice it was just not feasible in like a normal typical beer brewery but then the sake breweries after they've made the product for us um they couldn't package it so uh we eventually had to like go overseas and and go find a, a brewery in korea okay and blake can you can can you picture uh, how makali is made or yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I, this is just based on my own personal research. But, but when we, you know, sort of embarked on this project, we weren't making specifically a thing that we was going to be labeled as Makgeolli. Um It was a, sort of a, you know, a, a craft beer inspired by the flavors of Makgeolli. Um And so from a from a production perspective, that actually gave us an advantage because we were working, of course, in a, in a modern brewery with an all malt products. So uh, for us, you know, we were um, using, I think, 30% rice in that recipe rather than 100% rice and using that with um, actually German Pilsner malt uh, or the, the, the base of that entire beer. And even, even at 30% rice, it's, just, it's a nightmare beer to brew because <laughs> <You know, laughs> rice just turns into glue um, in a mash done specifically in, in our, our Second brewery is a larger production facility. And it's just it's a um, it's it's nightmarish. So uh, while it is delicious, I can absolutely understand why uh, someone would want a, a specialist facility uh, to handle something like that. So so what 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 would the Magali facility uh, be using to, to handle the rice that's different from you know your your brewing equipment? So uh, Carol can can probably correct my knowledge on this a little bit, but my understanding is that in traditional makgeolli fermentation, you're actually fermenting the the rice itself. Is that correct, Carol? Yes. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, so they're they're adding cultures to sort of you know cooked rice, if you will. Um, whereas we're using uh, a flaked rice, like a gelatinized. We use jasmine rice in our particular project because of its aromatic qualities. Um, but we're using a, a flaked jasmine rice product that we throw into the mash mixer just like we would, you know, oats or anything else that we would use in a beer. And then, uh, then the wort louders out from there again, just exactly like it would another beer. So 
um, from its foundations, it's a, it's a very much different process. It would be, uh, Jimmy, it would be closer to what distillers do, right? Where they are actually fermenting the entire mash, like grain, husks, everything, like all at once. Um, a makoli fermentation looks a little bit more like a distiller's fermentation than it does a, or it looks more like a, like a whiskey fermentation than it, than it does a beer fermentation. That's great. And then let's, I just want to bring Martin in. Martin, um, mm-hmm. culturally, you know, where do you see this product fitting in? It's an interesting time on the beer aisle right now because you have such a wide variety of products ranging from, you know, White Claw and its ilk to, um, you know, beer ranging from very traditional lagers or old school IPAs up to all kinds of um really well-respected fruit-infused um, IPAs and sours and and an emerging crowd of farmhouse sales. So I don't think that the visitor to a beer aisle, or at least certainly not our beer aisle, has one specific thing in mind when they think about beer. They think about a wide range of items. And so this would certainly, I could see several avenues um, that would lead to this kind of product, um, both out of the um, the fruited IPAs, the milkshake IPAs even, because of the creaminess of the texture, um, sours, of course, lactose sours. And let's not forget um, the overwhelming market for hard seltzers are very young people who are probably going to look at that as something they did, they drank when they were kids, and are going to look for something more grown up, and this certainly suits that. That's great. So, Carol, t- take it over. So, you 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 want to make the product, you realize you had to make it in Korea. So, where do you make it in Korea, and uh, you know what are some of the challenges of of so technically you're you're importing to the United States, right? Yes. Um, so initially, I wanted to brew in the U.S., um, somewhere on the East Coast, where obviously there's advantages, right? Like I wanted to do small, small batch. Um, I wanted to do a lot of like experimental flavors, and it's re- really challenging when you're working, you know, with a brewer that's across the country. No, not even across the country, across the world, and you have to kind of order containers at a time. Um, but I probably spent two years and visited at least 15 breweries trying to make this makgeolli work in, you know, by tweaking a current process, but either it was too expensive or there was no consistency or, um, you know, like we have, like Nuruk has wild culture in it. Um, there's like lacto and there's like all these other unknown bacteria, depending on like the Nuruk that you're using and no one wanted to take that risk. Um, also, there's like a lot of challenges with pasteurization. So ultimately, we had to go back to Korea. And in initially, when I was starting to research makgeolli, what I did was visit all of the largest makgeolli breweries in Korea, who've been around for like, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and I spoke with all the breweries to understand, you know, the brewing process, you know, like how long it takes, uh, what kind of flavors, what kind of ingredients. Um, and I had kept in touch with those breweries because I knew that ultimately, like if I wanted to scale on like a global level, I would need to probably 
go back to Makgeolli Brewery in Korea because there's no nothing like that scale in America, and um, it's just not the business I wanted to be in. Right, like I didn't want to be in the business of like building a brewery, um, like the operational stuff, like finding a brewer who could do this. Um, so yeah, like I ended up going to Makgeolli. I mean, a, a, a Makgeolli brewery in Korea, and for them. They had tried to penetrate the U.S. market, you know, for for like 10, 20 years and they just couldn't figure it out and they have given up at this point. Um, so for me to come along and, and, you know, try to do something that they couldn't figure out how to do um, was really exciting for them. And 100% they doubted me. Like they didn't think that I, you know, would be able to make it this far and even now when i'm placing orders i'm sure they're like oh you're placing another order like they're still very skeptical um but in terms of like the challenges with production i can say like there are none other than the high minimums and the fact that like with covid right now i can't do fast product development so like um typically i would just go to korea and then do a lot of like flavor testing and by the end of my trip I would have a new flavor but now it's like they're sending me samples I give them feedback and they have to brew again and then send me a sample so like product development is taking like six months now um so that's probably the only challenge um and then just the other challenges of not owning your own brewery there's just a lot a lot of limitations um but yeah I, I mean compared to the headaches that I had trying to brew domestically I can say that, like, um, I can't be happier with my current producer. Yeah. And then w- when that producer was earlier trying to, you know, get into the American market, um, were they making a similar product that, that you're that you're selling? Or, you know, besides the branding and, and the sales, did you, is this recipe like your own recipe or modified recipe? Yeah, so the original recipe that we were using was my mom's, the one in the U.S. But then when we went over to Korea, um, I didn't want to change, like, their suppliers. I wanted to um, take advantage of, like, their quality uh, quantity discounts. And um, they were getting nuruk from this very exclusive supplier, which I tried to get um, my nuruk from, and they said no to me. Um, so then I kind of wanted to continue using their current suppliers. Um, and like for fruit makus, I had a supplier in the U S but obviously like I can't really ship that overseas. And so I wanted to just continue using their fruit, um, supplier. And so we had to tweak our recipe, um, kind of like meet halfway between what they were currently brewing and like what I wanted here in the U.S. But the biggest difference between anything that's imported right now and maku is that everyone else uses artificial flavorings and um, they, they use a lot of shortcuts. So like makuli, typically it's like made like sake. So you steam the rice and then you, um, you know, add nurk and you ferment the rice. But what they're doing, they're either using like raw rice to brew and they're um, using like super cultures to break down the rice or they're using rice flour and the taste is just so distinctly different right and like I can taste that there's no depth of flavor um, and they all back sweeten with um, aspartame which I knew 
in America wouldn't really work. So that I had to make sure that um, the recipe was very traditional and it had no um, artificial anything in it. So, well, what, what's the ingredient that 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 is used for back sweetening in some of these? Aspartame. What's that? Um, it's like what you would find in Diet Coke or any diet soda or any diet iced tea. It's just like um, you know, when you when you go to a coffee shop. Uh, those like it's not stevia but like the other artificial sweeteners okay yeah yeah so it's an artificial sweetener yeah that's, that's being used so so what makes yours craft because and i know there's also you're talking about the rice and the and the, the negu um is uh, you know nuruk. the connect nuruk the connection with agriculture and and terroir mm-hmm. and the rice itself yeah i mean i think that there's always like so much discussion about what craft means and initially I think when we started we were craft because we were literally taking it from like our kitchen to brewing in like a tiny sake brewery and we were in the market at the time and so at that point like I could confidently say we were craft but you know we had to move to a co-packer in Korea which is much larger and I wouldn't call them craft by any means but I think that our brand is still like very like artisanal and um, like our company, the whole size of our company is like three people and it's still us creating like the liquid um, and the branding. Um, So yeah, I mean, people can argue with us, but I, you know, I still believe that we are like a craft Makkali brand versus what the other Makkali companies have been churning out and they have monopolies in Korea and they haven't changed their product for the past 20 years. Um, and for them, it's much more of a volume game. Um, you know, but for us, it's like, I want to use the best ingredients. I don't want to take any shortcuts. I just really care about like the quality of the product and, um, like the values of our company and, you know, our mission of trying to share this, very traditional, but like very like precious to Korea drink with the rest of the world. And um, yeah, so that's kind of where we stand as a company. That's great, Carol. Hey guys, we're off to a great start. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. 
You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's heritageradionetwork.org. Please join, become a member, support our show and the over 30 podcasts about food and chefs and farming and everything else that really matters to you, especially in these times. Heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about Maku, uh, a great uh, new brand that is a Korean makali. Uh, alcohol beverage, and we've got some great guests with us. So, so Blake, uh, you know, we're sitting here talking about a, a product that's made in Korea and sold in the U.S., but you're a, a craft brewer in New Jersey. Um, so how's the beverage scene treating you right now? There's been COVID. There's all these talks about what's craft. You know, you, you've scaled up. You've got a, a new brewery. Let's, let's, uh, let's check in with you. Yeah, so um, you know th- things have been very much pandemic-y. I-, I will say that you know for us, we were um, so- sort of on the luckier side, if you will, during the pandemic because we do have two breweries. We have our own packaging facilities in both places, um, and we had the supply chain aspects kind of nailed down very early. So we were able to uh, spin most of our, you know, production away from draft and into cans and do all of that relatively quickly. Um, you know, from a, from a sales perspective, things have been pretty good. Like our local business has been great. The tap rooms have been fantastic. Um, from a distribution perspective, um, you know, New Jersey is starting to wake up quite a bit, which is nice. You know, the past uh, six or seven weeks have been sort of better and better and better and better. Uh, Pennsylvania um, is also starting to wake up and they're buying a lot more beer. Uh, New York is, New York State is another one of our primary markets. That one is a little slower to come back for us. I, I think it's just because of the quantity of brands that uh, that exist in New York State. Like not everybody is going to come back at the same rate. But um, I will say on the whole, uh, things have been you know, things could have been much, much worse for us out here. Um, so we're, we're, we're thankful for that. Um, but I, I did have a quick question for Carol, if you don't mind. Yes, yeah, please. Sure. Yeah. So I was looking at your website and I was looking at the, the flavors that are available. And, you know, when, when we did our, uh, a beer called Soul Brothers is the name of the beer, um, that's Makgeolli inspired, we chose to go with uh, Korean pear was the, mm-hmm. the sort of primary fruit in that to overwhelming success, at least within the sort of the craft beer community where things like pear and apple and all that are sometimes looked at as off flavors. Um, you know, pairing that flavor with uh, this kind of high rice character um, really triggered something for people. So amongst your products, like how do the how do the how does the flavor lineup, you know, compare for you? Like, do you guys use pear? And if you don't, like, what are the flavors that are big? What are the ones that are slower? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, we only launched a year ago, and um, I only wanted to launch with three SKUs because I've heard from many other CPG founders and beer um, founders like that three SKUs is probably the optimal amount of SKUs to launch with. Um, and so we did an original Makali because 
obviously that's like what I wanted everyone to experience. And then I was kind of afraid that it would be a little off-putting to people given its color. Um, Makkali can also be, you know, a little bit tart and a little bit sweet, which is a strange combination that like you don't necessarily get from most beers. So I was like, okay, well, maybe if I could mask the taste or enhance it and be very fruit forward, like um, maybe that non-Asians would be more receptive to trying it and then make their way into like the original flavor. So then I was like, okay, like what are the like possible fruit I mean, flavor buckets. And I was like, okay, one is the citrus family. One is the berry family. One is like the tropical fruits family. Um, and for me, it was like trying to find like the most obvious flavors that like people would pick out on the menu and say like, oh, I like that. Um, but then like when it came down to tasting actual, you know, different flavors, the mango was a clear winner. And then surprisingly blueberry tasted good too to like whoever was tasting at the time so then those are the flavors we've launched with and we're still at those three flavors although we're working on a citrus flavor right now and then a few other asian flavors because a lot of people have been asking us for like specifically asian inspired flavors or like exotic as they say um in terms of what's selling well and doing the best i would say there's a two to one to one ratio between original and then blueberry mango and there's like a clear camp of like I love original, I love blueberry, and I love mango. Um, I would say mango is the most fruit forward and quite sweet. Um, tastes like a mango lassi, and I don't know. I hope I hope you shook it, Martin, because a lot of people forget to shake it, and it's I don't actually find it pleasant tasting if you don't shake it. Uh, and then blueberry is a little bit more crisp. And it's a little bit thinner. It's um, much more subtle in terms of like flavor forward. Uh, and then original is like just like a typical traditional makgeolli flavor. And it's very like, you know, rice, mochi, um, a very unusual flavor in terms of like what you would ever find in an alcohol. Um, so yeah, uh, to be determined what we're launching, but... I think the next one will be an orange, and it tastes like a creamsicle. And uh, yeah, we'll see sounds delicious. Happens. I will say it's very good. <laughs> no, it's, it's I'm really interested in it. Um, in terms of your sales channels, I know uh, the the store that Martin buys for is in the East Village, just a few blocks up from an, an H Mart. That's always both his West Side Market and the H Mart are really busy. Um, are you selling in, in stores like H Mart, which is that great uh, Korean American grocer? Yeah, so we're in, uh, I think H Mart has either 12 or 13 stores in New York City, and we're in all of them, and it's by far our number one seller. Um, and people who are looking for Maku go to H Mart just assuming that it will be there. Um, but now that we're trying to like, you know, we're getting more exposure to non-Asians and we don't want to be, you know, in this niche forever. And we don't want to be singled out as like, oh, that Korean drink that you drink with Korean food, because that's kind of what happened to sake. Um, I'm trying to move out of only like Korean and Asian channels as soon as possible. And we just started entering like a few Whole Foods and, um, you know, like now trying to get into like Morton Williams and um, yeah, we're in other stores like Westside Market, which is has a fantastic beer selection. 
And uh, I'm not sure which one does better. It literally depends on like the neighborhood that you're in. And I, at this point, don't keep track of like every store and its sales and how it's doing. Um, but yeah, we're definitely trying a two-prong approach and trying to figure out who our customer is at this point. Yeah. So let's go back to flavors. Uh, Martin and Blake, um, the choice of blueberry, you know, blueberry is one of those things that everyone seems to like when you hear about a blueberry beer, the, somehow the flavor is so subtle and, and just gives you that little bit of tanginess that you want. And, and everyone somehow thinks that blueberry is like that blue, blue flavor in, in uh, Willy Wonka or something. Um, Martin, you want to talk about blueberry as a flavor or an ingredient in in alcohol? Hmm. Um. I think. Well, let's see. How would I say this? The blueberry is maybe I have a strange scenario. Blueberry is sort of the sort of a lagging flavor for us on our aisle. Um. I don't know if there were certain blueberry beers before we came along that maybe besmirched the rep reputation of the fruit or something, but um, certainly beer with adjuncts have overcome their reputation as being beers that needed something to mask the flaws, and brewers like Hermit Thrush and um, and the aforementioned Finback and many others have done wonderful, Crooked Stay, for instance, have done wonderful work with fruit. And we're just now, Blueberry is just starting to lap our shores in a really, really positive way through Hermit Thrush, through Crooked Save, through other breweries. But um, the whole, when I started working there in 2014, I think people were still of an ilk to, or of a, a mind to turn their nose up at um, beers with fruit in them. And now um, we just, I just had a Finback hand that was brewed with cantaloupe and it sold yeah. out. And, matter of days ditto their mango one ditto the um their orange crush people i was putting it on the shelf and people were people were walking up with beer on their phones asking me do you have this so um yeah. and add there's been a distinct attitude change in the last three or four years when it comes to maku i think it's i see a really interesting split i carry the mango and i carry the original and um, it's almost as if the beers have set or the products have separate constituencies. Either people jones for one or they jones for the other. I rarely see somebody buying some of some of each. That's very interesting. And Blake, can I ask you about um, brewing with blueberries or other fruit like that? Yeah, uh, ab absolutely. I will say that you know, from my perspective, um, blueberries and strawberries are two fruits that I find to be personally the most challenging to produce products. Um, mainly because you have the, the flavor of blueberry and strawberry, and then you have what everybody thinks is the flavor of blueberry and strawberry. Um, and those two things don't often align. So, um, you know, uh, blueberry is a great example. We bring about a product like blueberry jam, like everybody knows Maine blueberry jam. Well, blueberries don't taste anything like Maine blueberry jam, right? Um, jam is, is cooked. It's got like this sort of very intensified cooked fruit flavor, like pie filling. Uh, and that's not what fresh blueberry tastes like. So 
I think with both blueberry and strawberry, you're kind of always fighting this. Oh, Blake, we lost you. Yeah, no, I was um, just explaining. I, I think that that because blueberries and strawberries specifically have a lot of water inside the fruit, that the sort of intensity of flavor that you get from them, um, specifically if they have to be pureed or something like that, tends to not be very high. So, um, you know, my, my hats are off to anybody like Carol who has found a way of getting good blueberry flavor in any, any alcoholic beverage because uh, I personally, I find it very difficult. And, that, and that's even with you know, sort of having the best of the best when it comes to fruit suppliers and that sort of thing. It, it's still a huge challenge. Oh, that makes sense. So the, the high water, so it's actually the opposite. Instead of getting this sweet blueberry jam, you're getting just a, a, a thinner watered down uh, flavor. So uh, um, I guess we'll go to Carol. So Carol, um, we're talking about fruit in, in your product. Um, and what, what Martin said was very interesting. So he says there's a camp like one, one tribe of people that will only have the original makali, the, the and the others that go for the mango. Absolutely. Um, so how do you test this? I, I must be interested. I know your background was with, at a larger larger beverage company and you've got some venture. Seems like you were in a venture. Well, you're a very interesting person coming into the this beverage scene. Um, so what kind of data do you analyze? How, how do you survey your customers? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very interested because it seems like you, I, when I looked at your your site, I couldn't believe you're in Seattle and New York. Um, you're, you're obviously a force to reckon with. So, w- <laughs> what's the secret that that, that that helps you figure it out? Uh, I I don't know. <laughs> um, so let's see. So we're in a couple of states now, but um, I came from a startup background before I was in the beverage scene. Um, I was first of all, I had a my own tech company when I was 21. And then I was involved with several other startups. And then even at the beverage company I was at, I was an MBA intern there and I was part of their like accelerator program. And they made us take classes about like the lean startup and the startup methodology and everything kind of pointed to like consumer testing. And so every process of the way I've been doing focus groups, interviews, um, like online surveys from like the concept to the liquid, to the packaging, to the messaging, to our ads. Um, like even today, right before this call, I did seven phone calls back to back with our customers to try to figure out like what they're liking, what they're not. And, um, you know, I've been kind of like using that as a North star and honestly, it's not good to do too much consumer testing, but I think some people just don't, um, prioritize that enough and for us like because it's not only a new brand we're launching but we're like launching a new category it's kind of really important to figure out who your customer is so you can kind of plan going forward in terms of like distribution um honestly we're just saying yes to whoever is coming um and being interested in us and so I think we're going to be opening up uh, 10 more states in the next two months. And it's all been like inbound requests. So we've been very fortunate. But how it plays out, I don't really know. I have no idea. Yeah. And then, and Martin just talks about, so Carol mentioned that she's you know, introducing this new category uh, to America. But how, how do you consider this as a category because it's on your shelf your shelf is amazing it's half an aisle of a big supermarket with the best craft beers around and and 
big hats off to you because you really do have a great selection. And many and for many shows, I go there to buy the beer now. Um, but but Maku's sitting there on the shelf in the middle of other things. So is you just you're just what what category is there? How, how do you you know even even is there a skew for it that says something no. non beer? No, we just put it out with uh, with everything else. I mean, we let everybody kind of sort out what they're what they're after. Um, to be honest, um, we tend to let size and appearance dictate where things go, and so Maku goes out with all the other twelve ounce cans, whether it's a Crooked Stave or a Cigar City or. Um, the Athletic, which is kind of a locale beer, these are all twelve ounce cans, and we just amalgamate them together in a in a spot on a shelf. And the idea is, we didn't, you know, it's a grocery store, and that ha- we, which is to say, we have some limits. If it was a beer shop, then everybody working there would be. Um, a, you know, either a Cicerone or a junior Cicerone or an aspiring Cicerone or something of that ilk. I don't have that luxury. I if I have a stat, if I have, I have a stock guy, and if he can put all of the victory beers with the victory beers, all of the other half beers with the other half beers, all the twelve ounce cans with the twelve ounce cans, the sixteen ounce cans with the sixteen ounce cans, the four packs with the four packs, the six pack cans with the six pack <laughs> cans, then we're good. You know, that's that's what I can accomplish. And it's unfortunate because I have people I I'm absolutely aware that if I could if I could group all of my if I could group all of my kettle sours together, if I could group all of my IPAs with adjuncts together, if I could group all my check pills together, it would be wonderful for sales because I would be servicing I would be taking the customer one step closer to exploring everything when in fact a lot of my customers have to spend time kind of sorting through beers they're not so interested in to find the beers they are interested in. So no, it's um I'm limit you know, on the one hand I have the ability to get a wide variety of products because we're big. Um, I'm sure the distributor brought Maku to our attention because they were interested. They knew that we could do this. Um, they knew that we could take their basic products, but they also knew that we could take their newer and perhaps more exotic products and do well with them. So that's wonderful. But by the same token, we have limitations. So there's only so much I can do from a merchandising perspective. May I ask Carol a question? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that's extraordinarily important for us and um, at our store is um, product appearance. And it's some, you know, we're in a glorious moment for, frankly, for beer can art. I mean, um, there's a story if Art Forum would like to hear it. Uh, precisely about how this has become a new wave of commercial art. Um, I, th- I like to think of it as um, it's the new album cover art. But nevertheless, Maku has a very interesting label, and I was wondering how that was developed. Yeah, sure. Um, so if I learned anything at my old company, it was that 
literally on top of taste, uh, packaging was more important for a new product. So if you have a new product, then you have a chance of getting tasted or like purchased. If you don't, then you can taste the best in the world and it doesn't matter. Um, so I spent like a lot of resources trying to find the best designer and, you know, as I mentioned before, I had done a lot of consumer testing and I found out like what the challenges of our product was. One, obviously we were starting a new category and no one knew any idea what this was. B, um, the flavor, I mean, the, the color of the drink is like milky white. And for like 90% of people who have never seen this before, it really turns them off and um, they don't actually even want to try it. And then um, the last was that it was unfiltered. So like all the sediment falls to the bottom and it's much more extreme than like a hazy IPA. And also because it's sweet, it doesn't taste good if you don't mix um, like the sediment back in because the balance is off. So then... I was like, all right, well, I want to be in a can. I knew that the future of beer was like in cans or like anything alternative. Um, like even now it's a canned wines, canned RTD. But this was three years ago, but I knew the future was cans. Um, I knew I wanted to look like a beer. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be 12 ounce. I'm going to be in a can because I want to play, play in the beer area. And then I was like, all right, well, people don't like the you know the color of this white drink but like I also know that if people are surprised or they expect they have certain expectations um and then what you're actually receiving is very different from the expectations they get really turned off so I was like all right well maybe if the can is white like they'll be subconsciously primed to like accept a white drink if they like somehow get to seeing it um and then I was like all right well uh, how do we address like the sediment falling to the bottom and like people not knowing how to shake it? I don't want like the entire can to say shake me. Um, and people also, if I tell them to shake it, they're still um, scared because they just assume that it's going to explode on them. So they don't actually shake it enough. So then initially when we launched and for the first year, um, our label was upside down. So the thought was, that all the sediment, once you turn the can upside down, all the sediment would fall into the can and then like you wouldn't have to shake the can. And so the the stripe came from finding a symbol that would stay intact upside down or right side up. Um, and then lastly, it was like, just like makkali is kind of like a very, it's more of like a calm, chill, casual drink, very like, you know, I wanted it to like be a little bit like evoke like a peaceful aura. Um, you know, it's not a party drink. Um, so yeah, I think uh, it was also in tandem with like designer's natural aesthetic and everything that he designs is very minimalistic. Um, but my personality, like I also like that kind of design aesthetic. So it was a combination of all those things, and then um, the stripe was really just like we changed the color by the flavor so wow that that's great guys this has been a really great show so i know we're all drinking maku um we have maku original and marco mako mango um and then blake tell us one more time what what's the um the kimchi smoke collab beer that you make
Uh, it is called Soul Brothers. That soul is in the, the city, not as in S-O-U-L. Um, it's available about twice a year. We're just about to brew it again uh, going into the fall season. So it should be out fresh within the next month. And uh, about a year ago, you said that you were going to be coming into the New York market. Yep. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, we were in the New York market for a little bit. Um, we've decided to change our distribution strategy a little bit. Um, because of the pandemic. So, um, you know, what was in New York before pandemic was what stayed in New York. Uh, but then now as we reestablish that market, we're going to change our strategy there. So um, should be out again soon in New York statewide, but not until after the first of the year. That's great. Listen, guys, it's been so great having you on. I want to thank you all for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, Martin Johnson, Carol Pack, and and Blake Crawford from Elementary. Uh, big shout out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, uh, head engineer, Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.